You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. According to Dallas Willard, our problem today is that we have what he calls a gospel of sin management. Dallas Willard was a professor of philosophy at USC until this fall when he passed away. And he defines sin management as the effort to fix our lives by managing our behaviors. And we see this all over the place. In our culture, we, we see it in uh, the proliferation of self-help books and, and seminars and TED Talks and personal trainers and life coaches and all the smart people that give us really good advice on how to live our lives and fix what's wrong with us. But Dallas Willard's argument is really with the church. He sees it in the church, and he, he, he wonders why it is that the church of Jesus Christ is so much like the world and so unlike its Savior. And his hypothesis is that, that we have a gospel of sin management, which is no gospel at all. That we have reduced the gospel, that we have reduced Jesus Christ, just so that all that's left of him is really just a fix for sins. On the one hand, he has what we call, uh, what he calls vampire Christians. Just a few drops of blood to get me into heaven. On the other hand, he has what he calls Pharisees of a more or less brutal social self-righteousness. These are the people who double down on the rules. And, And none of it says anything about the salvation, the redemptive work, the grace of Jesus Christ that really does transform lives. See, the problem with sin management is life's just not that simple. It's just not that easy, actually. So sad to see in the newspaper uh, this week Russell Wilson getting divorced from his college sweetheart, Ashton. And, you know, Russell Wilson, if you don't know, is the quarterback of Seattle Seahawks, young guy, great guy, and um, just hate to see somebody have to go through that. You just know the pain, and it's sad. It's so sad to see a relationship end like that. And, you know, if you've gone through divorce, if you have divorce close to you, you know the collateral damage. The collateral damage that follows from divorce is inestimable. And it's, it's uncontainable. And most of all, it's unmanageable. Uh, you don't just fix that uh, through a doubling down on rules and good behavior. And it could be any of us. In fact, I want to suggest that it is all of us. That all of us have dirt on our uniforms, all of us are injured and somehow playing through the pain of life, and all of us are, in the biblical language, lost in the wilderness. And when you're lost in the wilderness, what you don't need is someone shouting at you saying, get it together. You can manage. So what do we do? Well, over these next 10 or so weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, seven deadly sins. It could take us a little while to get there because I want to make sure we frame this uh, first. The point of the seven deadly sins series is a little different than what you might have thought. It's um, not about learning about what's wrong with our lives. It's actually about learning how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the robust, unreduced gospel of Jesus Christ, disrupts the ordinary behaviors of everyday life. And I want to begin right where we ended last week. And I'm glad that Ryan called us to that verse in First Peter. Because on Easter Sunday, what we saw was that Peter didn't become Peter by focusing on his behavior, good or bad. Peter became Peter by focusing on God's mercy. That was the rock in his life, remember? And we saw that Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, when he was reflecting on the resurrection, he said, 
What this all means is that God no longer takes you seriously as a sinner. Think about that. God no longer takes you seriously as a sinner. I mean, and that is good news. And the problem with many of us is that we're a more, uh, we take our sin more seriously, being sinners more seriously than we take our Savior. And you need to stop that. If God doesn't do that, you shouldn't do that. So this week, what I want to suggest, and this is my point tonight, is that we find life not in our own management, the management of our lives, but we find life when we bring our thirst to the broken heart of God. Bring our thirst to the broken heart of God. Let's check that in Scripture. Would you open up your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13? Uh, if you brought your own Bible, open up. Usually it cracks open to Psalms. Go to the right a couple clicks. You'll see Isaiah and then Jeremiah comes next. If you've got the Pew Bible there, it's on page 610. And what I want to do is I'm actually going to invite you to read with me the last two verses of that. But I'll, I'll loop back in a minute or two and read the whole passage to us. But if you're able, would you stand and read aloud with me Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord to give you a chance, if you believe it, to say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Let's begin with first things and define the word sin. What is sin? I think if we were to take what you just read seriously, we would have to say that sin is a kind of a refusal. My people have forsaken me. That's what you just read. It's a refusal. And so this is my definition of sin. Sin is the refusal of God's love. God sent Jeremiah in the 7th century to Israel. This was a time when Israel was fragmented and dissipating. This was a time of great yearning and longing for life to be the way it was supposed to be. But it wasn't. Interestingly enough, when God sends Jeremiah, his prophet, he does not send him with a checklist. He doesn't send him, Jeremiah's by just beginning his ministry right here. This is his first oracle. And, and he doesn't start off with a list of sins, deeds done wrong that got you into this fix. And he doesn't begin with a list of rules. Deeds, if done right, will get you out of this fix. No, it's not a list of sinful deeds, but it's a lament. That's what God gives his people, a lament. And I think the lament is given because it just describes something more foundational. Not sinful deeds, but a sinful dynamic. I think this is the essence of sin that is being portrayed for Israel and for us. So if you will now, you may want to keep your Bible open, but you may also just want to relax and close your eyes and let me read this text in full and hear what the Lord is saying to his people. I'm going to read verse 1 down to 13 now. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah tells his readers, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth 
your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it were held guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness and a land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land that no one passes through, where no one lives? I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. The priests didn't say, where's the Lord? Those who handled the law didn't know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more I accuse you, says the Lord. I, I accuse your children's children. Cross the coasts of Cyprus, the Mediterranean, that's to the west, and look. Send to Kedar, that's Arabia in the, in the east, and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods. But my people, have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that can hold no water. This is a lament of love, isn't it? Can you hear it? Love lost. And this lament says to us something, I think, about two hearts, the heart of God and our hearts. What it says about the heart of God is that God's heart is broken. This is a broken heart. God sits somewhere in heaven and looks back and says, you know, when I think of you, I remember our joyful wedding day. I think he's recollecting the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai when God binds himself to, to this nation in, in wedded matrimony, holy matrimony. It's like you were my bride. And like any groom would remember the joy of that first day of marriage, God glows. And there was this kind of adrenaline rush. We went on this honeymoon. You followed me through the wilderness, he says. We danced through the dry and waterless deserts together because I was taking you home. And there we would live and love forever. Home. That's what I remember. But that's not the way things are now. And in verse 5, he starts asking questions, the kind of questions that somebody who's been betrayed understands. And maybe there's somebody sitting next to you tonight who has someone they love deeply, who ran out on them, who betrayed them, who destroyed their trust and affection. 
This is the picture that God gives us of himself. It's like he's sitting by a phone with PTSD, wringing his hands, asking himself, what was wrong with me? What didn't I give you? What didn't your ancestors find in me? How, How am I the problem? This is the broken heart of God. I can't think of a more intimate disclosure of God's heart at this period of time than we get in this text. And then the lament, it tells us not just about God's heart, but it tells us about our heart, doesn't it? Because there's a a dynamic here. There are two parts to this. One is that we're all thirsty, all of us. All of us have a thirst that must, needs to be satisfied. And the other part of it is that we take that thirst and we try to satisfy it in all the wrong places, places that will never satisfy us. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you know how dry it is, how arid, and and it's brown most of the year. And water is essential for life, and it's so prized. It's the most valuable that we're fighting over water today in the Middle East. And and there were two ways of capturing water if you lived at that time. One was you could find a, a, a fountain of living water, Jeremiah calls it, which is a spring, a natural spring. And you'd find this if you were a weary traveler traveling through the wilderness. You'd find a circle of green in the brown. And it was because there was a, some kind of a channel that's bubbling up from a subterranean well of pure, fresh water. And coming, live, run, uh, living water was, meant running water. And there it was, running water, fresh water, bringing forth life in the waterless places. And the other place you could get water was you could build... Um, a pit in the ground. You could hew it out with hard work, uh, the hard ground or porous limestone. Problem is that it, it, it didn't work. They, they were notoriously high maintenance. The water would percolate through. It was just so dry. And that what they would do to mitigate that is that they would put plaster on the inside, but under the sun and with the moisture, it would crack habitually. And these things, these cisterns, would not hold water. And so God's looking at his people and he's saying, here I am, the fountain of living water. Life bubbles up. It's green and beautiful. And this is what I want for you because this is who I am. And on the other hand, you have turned to build cisterns of many different varieties that will hold nothing. And this is the, the spirituality of sin, as I call it. This is what it looks like. It, it's the dynamic between these two hearts. The broken heart that loves and the thirsty heart that needs love but looks somewhere else. Sin is the tragic refusal of God's love. It's the refusal of water, of a person dying of thirst. It's the thirst-crazed construction project to try to build something that will capture a few drops. It's the craving to feel loved in any number of ways, if only for a moment, because we have a sense that somewhere... Way far away, there is love at the heart of the universe, and that we're meant for love. Sin is the tragic refusal of God's love that means we're all living with the collateral damage of a broken relationship, the divorce between God and his people. And, and you and I will never find life by managing our lives because you can't manage love. It's a story in the news this week we've been following. It's fascinating. Yahya Abdi is a young man who yearns, who is thirsty. 15 years old. He lives in Santa Clara, California. He's a Somali-American, and he hadn't been here that long. He is yearning to be home in Africa. 
Um, he doesn't speak a lot of English, hasn't had a lot of schooling. He's in high school in Santa Clara. His parents are divorced. His father has told him that his mother is dead, that she died in a, um, a rocket attack. And he so much wants to be home. Found out this week that his mother, in fact, is not dead. His father lied to him about that. And that he's, she's, in fact, living in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. And uh, so he tried to take things into his own hands. He tried to manage the problem himself. You know what he did? He went to the San Jose airport. He climbed over a fence. He saw an airplane on the tarmac. He, he thought some reason it was going to Africa, but it actually said Hawaiian Airlines. Um, it's a airplane a lot of us would like to actually be on. But he didn't actually have a ticket. What he did is he climbed up into the wheel well, one of the rear uh, uh, wheels. And he got into a fetal position in a place that was didn't be a really lucky place because when the wheels retracted, he wasn't crushed to death. He went on a, a trans-Pacific flight, 38,000 feet, almost no air pressure, temperature drops, 70 below. Uh, went into kind of a, 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 coma, a comatose state. And then when the plane stopped in Hawaii, dropped out of the wheel, collapsed on the ground, pulled himself up, staggered over to a baggage carrier and begged for water. Unfortunately, he was in Hawaii. He was, he was farther from Africa. And unfortunately, he nearly destroyed. This is what's tragic about it. He nearly destroyed the beauty of his life and the beauty for which he thirsted. Because what drove him to do it was a deep yearning for home, for a mom, for someone who really loved him. And that's what's driving you and me. See, that's why they call them the seven deadly sins. Because this is dangerous business. To be thirsty, hanging over the lip, or, or maybe in the bottom of a pit that contains no water. They call them the seven deadly sins, not because they're so bad. In fact, they're all disorders of love. In fact, they're all reflections of something good. They're all reflections of something that God has given us. They're gifts, twisted the problem is that when you take a good gift and when you disassociate it from the love of the one who gave it to you, it's dangerous. That's why Frederick Beekner writes, and he lists some of them. He says, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, and pride are no more than sad efforts to fill the empty place where love belongs. And anger and sloth are just two of the things that may happen when you find that not even all seven of them at their deadliest ever can we're thirsty we can't manage our lives because well there's a lot in our lives that we just don't have control over but we can't manage our lives because we can't manage our thirst we just have to satisfy it and we're desperate and we try with great sophistication to satisfy our thirst in so many different ways and it's not working you only just have to read the newspaper to see here in Seattle and around the world, we build cisterns. We try to put things in it that will make us feel love for just a moment. Career, popularity, travel, technology, relationship, activism, wealth, sports, prestige, entertainment, wine, food. We think we want thrills and stuff, but we're really looking for love. We're really looking for what Pete Wilson calls the four A's. These are the four A's. Attention, acceptance, appreciation, and affection. That's exactly what God gives us in Jesus Christ. 
attention, acceptance, appreciation, and affection. Can I invite you to think about your life for just a moment? Do I dare ask you to think about your thirst? I mean, I know I'm thirsty. What's it look like in your life? Where do you yearn? And when you do, where do you turn? When you come up against something that's absolutely unmanageable, what do you do with that? Where do you go? Brene Brown uh, is a professor at University of Houston School of Social Work, and I really like Brene Brown. I've talked about her before, but she um, is a high-control person. She's worked really hard to manage her life. She's been very successful in academics. But one day she had a breakdown. She tells a story. Um, she went to see a therapist. The therapist said, I'm not sure therapists use sarcasm very often, but said, you need to get a bracelet that says, let go and let Brene, because she was God for her. What's interesting, though, is what Brene Brown, according to a new video she's just put out, someone's just put out, she's going back to church now. Her research has driven her back to church. But her motivation at first was wrong. She says, I went back to church thinking that it would be like an epidural. Go ask your wife. Uh, that it would take away the pain. <laughs> that I would just replace research with church, and church would make the pain go away. <laughs> Wishful thinking. But what I found is that faith for me was not an epidural at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me saying, push, it's supposed to hurt a little. I thought faith would take the pain and discomfort away, but what it ended up saying to me is, no, I'll sit with you in it. And I never thought that, I, that that would be enough. And it's perfect. And I don't feel alone anymore, she says. So what Brene Brown is learning is that when she's in the bottom of a pit, when she cries in her longing, God is crying too. She's finding her way into the love of Jesus. She's finding her way into the broken heart of God. And when she says, uh, faith is saying to her, push, I don't think faith is saying to her, push into a program of rules. I think faith is saying to her, push into your belovedness. The reality that God loves you. We can't manage our thirsty hearts, but we can bring them to God's broken heart. And I want to just very quickly be practical with you. How do you do that? Two things. One is confession and the other is faith. What is confession? Confession is not what so many of us have been taught. Raising your eyes to heaven, beating your breast and saying, oh, I'm such a miserable worm. I've done it again. No. Confession is knowing yourself as God knows you. It's agreeing with God. And if you were going to agree with this God, you would have to agree that you are a beloved a beloved bride to a great heavenly bridegroom. He never wants you to see yourself that way. And what is faith? Faith is not making a promise that you'll do it better next time. Faith is placing your trust in God's promise that he's done it once and for all for you. That's faith. Confession and faith. Remember the Samaritan woman? Remember that story? Jesus found her in the midday heat. She was looking for water. And Jesus used her thirst as a parable to explain back to her the motive of her whole life. You're thirsty. And Jesus said at one point, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, well, I have no husband. 
And he says, you've spoken well. It's very clever of you because you've had five men. The man that you're now with is not your husband at all. Not to shame her, but to surface her thirst and to draw her into her belovedness. So the, the, the narrative that's been driving her whole life has been her thirst. And he looks at her and says, if you knew the gift of God and who I am, you would ask me for a drink. And I would give you living water. Bring your brokenness to me. Everyone, he says, who drinks of this water, meaning the physical well, will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them, my love, will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Now, some of us read that story in in John chapter 4, and we get a little nervous. We think, wait, Jesus, don't let her go yet. Don't let her go yet. You haven't given her the rules yet. Wait, 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 wait. You haven't told her. You know, she's living with a guy she's not married to, and we all know that's wrong. So you're supposed to tell her that she can have the water, but she can't have the guy. Right? Isn't that right? I mean, think about it. But you know what? Jesus doesn't need to do that. Because the reason she's had the guy is because he's thirsty and she's thirsty, and it's out of their brokenness that they have made this arrangement. Now that he has satisfied or is satisfying her thirst, she's got no reason to go back with him. I think that guy is history. He has set her free to live absolutely counterculturally in his love. This is radical. We find life when, by faith, we face into the love of of Jesus. This is why God visited this planet in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus, when he came and walked among us, had no patience for those who were doubling down on the rules. The Pharisees, he says, "You, you look beautiful, but so does a whitewashed tomb. On the inside, there's nothing but dry bones. This is why Jesus preferred to spend his time with those whose thirst was very evident with prostitutes, with lepers, and with tax collectors. See, in the fullness of time, God's broken heart led Jesus Christ to come and hang on the cross for us because ultimately this bridegroom will not be denied. He has acted on his great love to draw us home. Eternally and today. I want to close by reading a little reflection to you. It was written about 500 years ago by Martin Luther, the reformer, the German reformer. Martin Luther knew the theological significance of this biblical image that God is our bridegroom. And he calls us to faith. He calls us to take the Savior more seriously than our sin. I want you to listen hard to this. This is kind of old language, and it's, it's rather long, but I'm just going to close with this. Martin Luther writes, Faith unites the soul to Christ as the wife to the husband. Now, if they are one flesh, and if a true marriage, nay, by far the most perfect of all marriages... Then it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common, as well good things as evil things. So that whatsoever Christ possesses, that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of as its own. And whatever belongs to the soul, that Christ claims as his. If we compare these possessions, we shall see how inestimable is the gain for us. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and condemnation. But let faith step in, and then sin, death, and hell will belong to Christ. And grace, life, and salvation of the soul. For if he is the husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's, 
and at the same time impart to his wife that which is his? For in giving her his own body and himself, how can he but give her all that is his? And in taking to himself the body of his wife, how can he but take to himself all that is hers? In this displayed, in this is displayed the delightful sight, not only of communion, but of a prosperous warfare, of victory, salvation, and redemption. For since Christ is God and man, and is such a person as neither has sinned, nor dies, nor is condemned, nay, cannot sin, die, or be condemned, and since his righteousness, life, and salvation are invincible, eternal, and almighty, when I say such a person by the wedding ring of faith takes a share in the sins, death, and hell of his wife, nay, makes them his own and deals with them no otherwise than as if they were his and as if he himself had sinned and when he suffers, dies, and descends to hell, that he may overcome all things since sin, death, and hell cannot swallow him up, they must needs be swallowed up by him in stupendous conflict. For his righteousness rises above the sins of all men. His life is more powerful than all death. His salvation is more unconquerable than hell. Who then can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who then can comprehend the riches of the glory of this grace? Christ, that rich and pious husband takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his good things. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her. Since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up in him, and since she has in her husband Christ a righteousness which she may claim as her own and which she can set up with confidence against all her sins, against death and hell, saying, If I have sinned, my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. All mine is his, and all his is mine. Let's pray. God, we do need to do nothing tonight. But confess and believe. But confess that we're thirsty. And believe that you offer us tonight the gift of living water. God, give us the freedom to turn away from all those broken cisterns. And draw us forevermore into your grace. And if tomorrow we should find ourselves sinners, grant that we would take our Savior more seriously and know that again and again and from everlasting to everlasting, we have been forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.